0: Amen
1: <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, Pazile, what an incredible gift yes. And it's just even more beautiful when it's uh, dedicated to the Lord uh, Family, could I have the lights on please? Uh, this young guy is getting old There we go, some, some more lights uh, apologies for the for the acorn. Um I know there's a strong wind coming from the east that's going to blow <laughs> While I'm preaching um, Man, I just love church. I've been a church boy all my life uh, Didn't have the option like like some people did on skipping church. I grew up under a strict disciplinarian uh, of a lady my grandmother who um, played the organ in church uh, so she didn't give us a chance to breathe or think about sleeping in (laughs) Uh, we never missed a service as rotten and naughty as we were Uh, we never missed uh, youth Uh, I think my cousin Roscoe will know how sick she was she used to beat us on time every time all the time and um, today I look back and really appreciate uh, the strict discipline uh, she brought us up under um, and uh, coming to church every Sunday is, it's its just part of my fabric you know something is just out of sync when I'm not in church yeah. uh, and so I just love, uh, love being here you know sometimes you tempted as the pastor to get up look at the weather and sleep in um, but the scripture says, "Woe is me. <laughs> if I do not preach the gospel, amen. Uh, so welcome if you are a guest, a uh, visitor, welcome uh, to Rebirth. Thank you so much, Palile, for that testimony. Yeah. It really affirms what we're doing in the call of God um, over Rebirth. Amen. If I had a choice, I'd be a church member just like, like you. Uh, sit in, enjoy church. Uh, instead of uh, Having to preach here this morning and trust me every one of our preachers will tell you that um, There is no fun and and excitement in preaching It's incredibly hard work Uh, In fact uh, HB's Charles said that a desire to preach without the burden to prepare uh, just boils down to the desire to perform Mm -hmm. and so I'd rather be uh, at home, preparing, enjoying the word of God, then having the pressure to, to preach it. Uh, because I'm not the most charismatic of preachers, uh, but get ready, get ready, get ready, get ready. <laughs> Family we are in uh, Exodus, uh, let me start. stop noodling, we are in Exodus chapter 12. Uh, we continue with our series of the book of Exodus, we are on part 3 the title of uh, Today's message is simply the tenth plague. There were ten plagues that God rained down on Egypt to set his people free And this morning we will be covering uh, the ten plagues And uh, when we're done, I'd like to also pray for uh, Charles, is uh, Charles in, in in the house this morning? Charles, Not in the house, sorry, nay Yes. Okay. Then we'll just uh, we'll just pray for you as well. Um, to, are you at Are you at um, Exodus uh, Exodus twelve? Give me an amen. 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 Thank you so much, Candace. And let's read from uh, verses verses uh, twenty one. Exodus twelve, verses twenty one. the Bible reads as follows, then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your house to strike you. And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. It will come to pass When you come to the land which the lord will give you just as he's promised, that you shall keep the service And it shall be when your children say to you What do you mean by the service by the celebration? That you will say it is The Passover sacrifice of the lord who passed over the houses of the children of israel in egypt when he struck the egyptians and delivered our households so the people bowed their heads and worshiped then the children of israel went away and did so just as the lord had commanded moses and aaron and so they did verse 29 and it came to pass at midnight that the lord struck all the firstborn in the land of egypt from the firstborn of pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of livestock even the animals suffered under this plague verse 30 so Pharaoh rose in the night he and all his servants and all the Egyptians and there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not one house where there was not one dead then he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said rise Go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel and go serve the Lord as you have said and also take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone and bless me. And the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste for they said we shall all be dead. Amen. God bless us. The reading of his word is nothing better that we can say or add uh, to God's word this morning. Can we pray? Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that is in this place. We thank you for the Spirit of Christ that testifies of Him, the Spirit of Christ that convicts us of our sin, the Spirit of Christ that is working in our hearts to conform us to the image of Jesus, the Spirit of Christ that teaches us all things, even the deep things of God, Things that are in the mind of God For no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no has been conceived in the minds of men the things that you have prepared for us But you have revealed these things by your Spirit. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you speak to our hearts this morning Show us Jesus Show us Jesus reveal his glory to us. We ask in the mighty name of Jesus and everybody says Amen Amen and Amen family just a quick um, Uh, Overview of uh, Exodus before we get into the message. You know that Moses is the author uh, of Exodus. He authored the first five books of uh, of the Bible the Pentateuch or as the Hebrews know with the Torah the original intended audience um, is the Hebrew people and their future generations Uh, the date of the book of Exodus according to Hannah and many scholars is around circa uh, 1300 BC during the reign of uh, uh, Ramesses the the big idea and purpose behind the book of Exodus because every book has a purpose the aim of Exodus uh, centers around the experience of God's deliverance of the children of Israel and the establishment and constitution of Uh, the descendants of Abraham as a theocratic nation a nation that serves under God that's the purpose God remembers his promise to Abraham and God sees the oppression of the children of Abraham and he calls Israel his firstborn and delivers them from slavery now you must understand that there were according to scholars an estimation of about two million Jewish people that were slaves in Egypt. Paulson stated that when God delivered the children of Israel out of Exodus, it was the biggest escape in history. Two million people from a highly fortified nation, Egypt, that was the dominant power, world power in its time. And so deliverance from Egypt would have been impossible absolutely impossible because they were the dominant superpower of the day and what God would do for Israel no one would be able to do for them and they would never be able to do it for themselves and last week we said this points directly to the heart of the gospel message that God does for us sinners what we cannot do for ourselves.
0: Amen.
1: We cannot save ourselves. Amen. We cannot deliver ourselves. We are in a desperate destitute place and it is only by grace through faith that we are saved nothing of ourselves lest we boast and so we mentioned last week that exodus can be divided into two parts from chapters 1 to 18 we have the redemption narrative from chapters 19 to 40 we have the revelation narrative where, where God gives them laws and and he gives them the 10 commandments and ceremonial laws roughly about 600 laws and he establishes the tabernacle at Sinai and they were to now worship uh, God Uh, out of coming from a place of slavery and so in the first half of exodus we see how it is described and detailed for us how god uh, delivers israel and what he does for israel and in the second half we see now that since god has delivered them he asked them in, in in the spirit of appreciation to live for him now since he set them free And so we mentioned last week um, that when God sets you free from bondage, when God sets you free from addiction and from a life of slavery to sin, he now calls us to walk as free men. And so he doesn't just call you out of the darkness. He calls you into the light. And so it's not enough that you are saved, justified and declared a saint and you blood washed. No, it is not enough. You have to embrace the process of sanctification. You have to grow. Amen. And that, as, so that the things you did, you do no more. And this morning, we will be having a case study. We usually do a Bible topic, but this morning just very quickly, we'll have a case study. And our case study is on the subject, Pharaoh's hardened heart. Mm-hmm. Pharaoh's hardened heart. Um, Romans 9 makes mention of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Scripture says in Romans 9 verse 17 to 18 uh, concerning Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I may display my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. We see the hardening of Pharaoh's heart described in detail for us between Exodus 7 and Exodus 12. Uh, in each of the plagues ten plagues uh, there is a reference to Pharaoh hardening his heart. Uh, so chapter 7 verse 22 with the plague of the blood the Bible says Pharaoh his heart became hard. Chapter 8 with the frogs uh, he hardened his own heart. Chapter 8 again in verse 19 with the gnats and lice it said that Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Chapter 8, again, another reference to Pharaoh hardening his own heart. Uh, Chapter 9 verse 12, Pharaoh hardened his heart again. Uh, Again in chapter 9, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Uh, Later on again in chapter 9, the Lord hardened his heart again. With the locusts, God announces that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. In chapter 10, when darkness covers the earth uh, uh, and, and, and Egypt, Bible says God hardened Pharaoh's heart and then with the death of the firstborn in chapter 11 verse verse 10 Bible says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart again and when anything is repeated in a a narrative God is trying to to emphasize something so what we see between uh, plagues one and plagues five the first five plagues we see that Pharaoh is explicitly hardening his own heart God doesn't harden his heart then, then from plague six to ten, we have four times that God hardens his heart. It's almost as though God's giving Pharaoh a chance to humble himself first, but he refuses through the first five plagues. So God removes his common grace and further hardens his heart. It's the picture we have in Romans 1 because men were not grateful and didn't acknowledge God as God God handed them over to themselves he removed his common grace and uh, Romans 1 calls that uh, uh, you know being handed over to a reprobate mind in other words God saying you've been so stubborn for so long I am going to leave you to yourself but in this case with Pharaoh God says since you've hardened, your, I'm gonna harden it further for my glory. And when we look at the context of Romans 9 We see that Paul is speaking about the subject of the Jews rejecting the Messiah And then he makes reference to him hardening Pharaoh's heart like he's hardened the Jews hearts. And so in conclusion um, What we see here from Pharaoh's hardened heart and God hardening his heart Is that no matter what Moses said, no matter what miracles were performed, Pharaoh would not listen. Reichen states that the back and forth repetition describing Pharaoh's art in Exodus is a brilliant way of diagnosing the human condition. In other words, Pharaoh is the very picture of an unbeliever. A man who is determined not to give in to God. No matter how long you preach, no matter how many signs and wonders may be performed, when a heart is hard and determined not to give in to God, nothing can save him. So Exodus shows us that in spite of the evil and hardness of men's heart, God can still accomplish his purposes. He is not held hostage by our wickedness. God can work all things out for his purpose. No man holds him hostage. Are you still with me family? Now let's get uh, snowballing into our our message and before we do um, it's important for you to understand that the Bible is not a code book. For human behavior. Uh, perhaps one of the most seductive counterfeit messages uh, to the gospel is the message of moralism. Uh, moralism says be a good person, be like Moses, be like Aaron, be like Father Abraham, do these things if you want to achieve success. Moralism uh, sounds good and is not on the surface a bad thing but it It becomes dangerous when you grab those lessons and don't fit them into the gospel so moralism aims at reforming our behavior and getting us to conform to a standard but what the gospel does is the gospel seeks to change our hearts and transform our hearts first and our behavior changes as a result of a changed heart The Word of God changes us when we begin to place our faith in Christ and His righteousness and His promises. So when we examine and read the Old Testament, don't simply look for lessons for success or lessons to become a good example. While you will find those lessons there, I want you to note how Christ interpreted the Old Testament. In Luke 24, 23 to 27, you don't need to turn there. Bible says that he is walking with Cleopas and an unnamed disciple uh, after he's been resurrected down the road of Emmaus. You may know the story. And while he's talking to them, they don't recognize him because this is the post resurrected Jesus. And he says to them, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And verse 27 states and beginning at Moses and all the prophets He expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself Christ preached Christ from the Old Testament The way you interpret the Old Testament is by searching for the gospel and by searching for Christ. Jesus is the interpretive key of the Old Testament. So what am I not saying? I'm I'm not saying that we have to allegorize every passage of scripture and make it look like Jesus. No, that is in a way torturing the text. I'm not saying that the stories themselves don't present us with valuable lessons because they do. We can draw moral lessons from these Biblical accounts and and stories yeah. But what I am saying is that the truths we learn from the Old Testament scriptures Are only significant to the extent that they are part of the bigger story Amen. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ Are oh, you so with me family? Amen. And I've mentioned it in times past that there are three flaws to biblical interpretation Do you remember that? There are three floors to interpreting the Old Testament. The first floor is is where we find application for ourselves. What, What moral lessons and truths and principles can we draw for our own lives in the story of David and Goliath? But there's a middle floor. The middle floor looks at the context, historical context, and what it actually meant for the original audience. What did it mean for Israel? What did it mean for the Philistines? and in the top floor of biblical interpretation is called redemptive history where we see Christ in the text, where we see the gospel proclaimed in the text and how God marks history with his redemptive plan and so many of us never get to the top floor some of us don't even get to the middle floor and all we do is stay on the bottom bottom floor of interpretation now when we get into Exodus chapter 12 from actually we're gonna do what they call a reverse chronology to a flashback uh, because I can't read to you all five chapters though I'd love to <laughs> but the entire Exodus event, uh, where God brings down the ten plagues where God parts the Red Sea, where God does signs, wonders and miracles is the ultimate expression and demonstration of his power. Uh, you will never find such a demonstration in the Old Testament of God uh, showing his power, demonstrating his faithfulness to the covenant of Abraham, and his love and his mercy and his grace towards the people uh, of israel and the world will never get to see such a demonstration of power and god's faithfulness until the time christ would come the world will never get to see such a demonstration of god's power until jesus christ would walk the earth the world will never get to see such mercy and grace unfold until jesus christ appears what's pivotal though in the entire exodus event when god's demonstrating his power and freeing the children of israel is the event of the passover lamb everything hinges on the story and the plague of the passover lamb that was sacrificed because it was at that tenth plague that god delivers the children of Israel from over 400 years of slavery. So in all the miracles Moses does and in all the plagues that God rains down from the first plague to the ninth plague, the tenth plague is the culminating event where God now uses the Passover lamb to redeem his people there are a series of 10 plagues from chapter 7 to chapter 12 there's the plague where the water of the nile is turned into blood Uh, then we have the plague of the frogs the plague of the of the lice as i'm mentioning lice some of you are feeling your your hair and scalp itching (laughs) there's the plague of the flies there's the plague of the pestilence and disease that infects all the livestock there's the boils that God rains down on the Egyptians. There's the hail storm that comes and damages the crops and damages the livestock further. And then there's the locusts. Uh, Locusts uh, are said to be reported to come in the millions. They can eat over a gram their size. So literally in 2020 in Ghana, uh, uh, locusts actually destroyed millions of crops in a space of days that's how devastating a a locust swarm can be to agriculture and then God blotted out the sun for three days that was the ninth plague then once he's blotted out uh, the 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 sun for three days it was complete blackness Uh, he then kills all the firstborn children and animals in Egypt now the 10 plagues, the, the 10 plagues, if you read them in, in sequence, uh, remember last time we spoke about how to interpret the Old Testament we made to the to the fact that we have to pay attention to time gaps. Yeah. And so these events and plagues did not occur in one moment. They actually occurred over a period of nine months, these 10 plagues. How we know this? is because uh, the Nile swells and rises during July and August. And then the 10th plague occurred during the Passover month, which was April. And that's approximately nine months. What was the fundamental purpose of God uh, uh, unleashing these plagues upon the children of Israel? Quite simply that Egypt may know his name. And that Israel might know his name. We find this uh, reference in or a clue in Exodus chapter 7, uh, where God says, I will lay my hands upon Egypt and deliver the host of people. My people, the Israelites from the land of Egypt with great acts of judgment. And the Egyptians shall know that I am God when I stretch my, my hand against Egypt. Remember in chapter five, verse two, Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? I don't know who is this Yahweh that you you speak of. He doesn't fit into my list, my pantheon of, of God. And so God was about to show who he was. And so seven times during the plague, God makes these statements. He says that they may know my name, that they may know I am the Lord, that they may know I am in their midst, that they may know that the earth is mine. He makes those statements in Exodus 7:5, Exodus 7:17, 7, chapter 8 twice, chapter 9 twice, chapter 10 verse 2 and 11 verse 17. He says that my name will be known and Israel. Uh, Israel were the true beneficiaries of God unveiling his name because he really wanted them to know who he was as his people and so in Exodus 14 verse 31 the Bible says when Israel saw the mighty acts which the Lord has done in Egypt the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses Israel and Egypt were steeped in a polytheistic worldview. They served multiple gods. Israel wasn't exempt from this They were influenced by the culture and so God was about to reveal himself to the children of Israel as the one True living God and that's why when he teaches the children of Israel in Deuteronomy He says behold O Israel I the Lord your God am one and beside me there is no other and so he saved israel uh, for his namesake psalm 106 verse 8 says nevertheless the lord saved them for his name's sake that he might make known his mighty power he saved them and delivered them for his reputation he saved and delivered them to reveal who he is his character he saved and delivered them out of egypt to expand his glory that his name would become famous and so these 10 plagues were to reveal who he was are you so with me family and so god in God rained down 10 plagues these 10 plagues invoke the story of creation because exodus is an extended story of creation in 10 commands in 10 utterances God says let there be let there be and the world was created now in 10 plagues God would create a new nation the children of Israel and so he struck the Egyptians it with 10 plagues to invoke the story of creation that he is lord over all that the earth is his and the fullness thereof in the Egyptian worldview, you must understand that the role of pharaoh was to intercede with the gods to maintain the order and flow of nature that was it was the role of a pharaoh They they were looked at as a deity that they helped to control the order of nature. And so they worshipped Pharaoh, they worshipped his God, and God was about to show them that I'm going to upset the flow of nature because all of creation hangs on my words. And in 10 judgments over Israel, he shows that he is supreme over land, he is supreme over water, and he is supreme over the sky. The 10 plagues further reference the 10 commandments that God would now give to the children of Israel. In the study of biblical numerology, 10 is the number of completion. Just as there were 10 utterances of God in creation in Genesis chapter 1, that would form uh, the primary reference for the 10 commandments and the 10 plagues these would also become the reference for the giving of the 10 commandments that God will give and express his nature and his name to the children of Israel and so there is a correlation between the 10 commandments and the 10 plagues the purpose of both of them is to reveal his name are you still with me family perhaps the most intriguing feature of these 10 plagues is that in these ten plagues we find God go to war with the gods of Egypt Exodus 12 verse 12 it says and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment I am the lord and so god shows up the foolishness of trusting in false gods god god shows up the foolishness of trusting in the egyptian gods there were many and so he judges them he goes to war on idolatry If, if there's anything you place your trust in other than god god will go to war with it and so he shows the egyptians And the Hebrews, how the Egyptian gods of the earth, sky, and land cannot protect them. And so in Exodus 7, verses 14 to 21, he turns the Nile into blood, which is a direct assault on the Egyptian god of the Nile, which is called Hapi. And a direct assault on the god Num which was pictured as a ram. In Exodus 8, we find God go to war with Hecate, who was the goddess of birth, who was pictured with the head of a frog. We find God in chapter 8, judge the God of the desert, Set, who is illustrated in the gnats and lice. We find God in chapter 8, judge Eutychik, and Kepri, who is the Lord of the Marshites, and is symbolized by the head of a fly. We find God, Judge Hathor, and Apis, the, God, the goddess of agriculture, which is symbolized with the head of a cow. In Exodus 9, we find God, Judge Sekhmet, the goddess of power over disease and Sunu, the goddess of pestilence when he brings boils down on the children of of Egypt. In Exodus chapter 9, we find God judge the goddess of the sky, Nut, and the goddess of the crops and fertility, Osiris, and the god of storms by bringing down hail. In Exodus 10, we find God judge Nut and Osiris again when he brings the locusts. Again, later on in Exodus uh, Exodus 10, 21 to 29, we find God judge the God of the sun, Horus, and Ra, the sky goddess, and Hathor, the sky goddess, when he blots out the sun for three days. God is at war with the gods of Egypt. And then lastly, in Exodus 11 through to chapter 12, we find God judge Pharaoh himself and his firstborn son who was worshipped as a deity. And God judge Isis, the goddess of the protected children, when he kills all the firstborn of Egypt. So God is at war with idolatry. That's why if you're going to serve anything other than God Make sure it's God enough to heal you when you're sick Make sure it's good enough to save you on the day of judgment And that's why God tested the heart of Abraham He said take your son And put him on the altar if you're gonna make an idol out of your son I will show you how vain and how temporal your trust in your son can be give me your son God tests his heart and so God will always test us in whatever we put our heart in if you put your heart in your career he may test it if you put your your heart even on your family he will test it if you put your heart on your resources and your influence and your reputation God will test it just to show you nothing else is worthy of being God in him because he's a jealous God. Amen. Amen. And so uh, the 10 plagues, when we examine them more closely, we see that the first nine plagues are set out in three sets. Three sets. Hannah states that the 10 plagues can be grouped in three units of three plagues culminating in the 10 plague in judgment. So we find that the first three plagues The plague of the blood, the frogs, and the gnats are the first set. The second set is the death of the livestock, the boils, and the flies. The third set is the hail, the locusts, and the darkness. Now over these three sets you will find a pattern. Within the first set of three plagues, the rod of Aaron is used. Within the second set of three plagues, the rod of Moses is used and not the rod of Aaron. In the last set of three plagues, there's no rod used. Then we will find with the first set that the first two judgments are announced to Pharaoh. And the third plague of the first set is not announced to Pharaoh. We find that pattern repeats itself in the second set. The first two plagues are announced to Pharaoh and the third plague is not announced to him. In the third set we find the same pattern. The first two plagues are announced to Pharaoh and the last plague is not announced to him. And then you will find plague 1, plague 4 and plague 7 beginning the cycle introducing the same words in the morning. We will find that in plague 3 we find that the magicians are completely defeated because they were able to replicate all the signs until plague 3. And then we find in plague 6 that the magicians are not even able to stand before Moses because they're covered in boils they are completely defeated now and then in plague 9 we find a a separation now finally between pharaoh and moses where pharaoh says i do not want to see you the next time i see you i will have your head and so from that day moses and pharaoh didn't see eye to eye or face to face and then we have uh, the last plague the last plague which breaks the pattern the last plague which is the culminating Uh, act of judgment and in this plague this plague is totally separated from the nine it's unannounced but it's detailed to the children of israel now they get to participate in what god is about to do in egypt and so god gives them a set of specific detailed instructions very detailed he says, each of the household should take a lamb. The lamb must be without spots and blemish. The lamb must be killed uh, at twilight. The blood of the lamb must be dipped with, uh, with hyssop branches and applied to the lintels of the doors. Uh, the, the lamb must be roasted, not boiled, roasted. Somebody say roasted lamb. It must be roasted in fire and not one bone of the lamb is to be broken. The lamb must be eaten completely, no leftovers, no doggy bag. And this day must be marked and established and memorized as a celebration, the Passover feast for all eternity. The Jews still celebrate it now. This would be the plague that puts the proverbial last straw on the camel's back of Pharaoh. And this would be the last plague that brings deliverance for the children of Israel. But one cannot deny the sense of poetic justice in this last plague, the sense of divine retribution attached to this plague. And Fawcett and Brown put it so clearly when they spoke of the death of the firstborn. And I quote At midnight, the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. At the moment when the Israelites were observing the newly instituted feast in the singular manner described, the threatened calamity overtook the Egyptians. It is more easy to imagine than describe the confusion and terror of their people that suddenly were roused from sleep and enveloped in darkness. None could assist their neighbors when the groans of the dying and the wild shrieks of the mourners were heard from everywhere. The hope of every family was destroyed at a stroke. This judgment, terrible though it was, revealed the equity of divine retribution, because for 80 years, the Egyptians had caused the male children of the Israelites to be drowned in the river, Exodus 116. Now all their firstborn. Would fall under the stroke of the destroying angel They were made in the justice of God to feel something Of what the children of Israel were made to feel unquote. God applied the law of retaliation an eye for an eye for 80 years The children of Israel had their babies thrown into the river Nile And God said I will give you what you deserve there's nothing worse than getting from God what you deserve i never prayed to the Lord and said Lord be fair i said Lord give me grace i need mercy i'm weak i'm frail i need you and the difference between grace judgment and mercy is this grace is where God gives us what we don't deserve some of us didn't deserve the jobs we have the husband, handsome husbands you have. <laughs> the good looking wives you have. The car you drive, the house you live in. Some of us are looking like, how are you living there? How do you afford <laughs> The grace of God. You don't deserve what you have. So why boast about it? Why boast about what you have when what you had you receive freely? The mercy of God is when God withholds from us what we deserve. We deserve punishment. We deserve death. Is anyone here that thinks you deserve the best? Think again, because that's not the message of the gospel. We are all, we were all dead in our sins, objects of His wrath, and He did not show us judgment. He showed us mercy and grace. Judgment, on the other hand, is when God actually decides to give you what you deserve. So I want His grace. I want his mercy, amen. Amen. And so the death of the Passover lamb in Exodus chapter 12 fundamentally served as a shadow, as a shadow, a flickering shadow to the perfect and climactic death of Jesus Christ that was to come. Matthew 27, Matthew 15, Luke 23 and John 19. Barrett stated that the significance of the Passover event to biblical theology, uh, of, of biblical theology of redemption, extends not only throughout the Old Testament but right into the New Testament. So, according to the Gospel of of Luke in chapter nine, when Jesus is transfigured, you know the story of the transfigured. Uh, mountain Jesus transfigured before his three closest disciples and there he's found talking with Moses and talking with Elijah and Luke's gospel says this in the Greek It says that they talked about Christ's death uh, And his exodus That he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem this theme flows over into the New Testament. The offering of the Lamb of God was important to him. Amen. Amen. And so when we look at at the theme and motif of the lamb throughout scripture, we'll find that perhaps the first time a lamb was slain uh, was the time when Adam and Eve sinned. Because God found them in sown fig leaves and fig leaves are prickly. And they put these leaves together and I can only imagine the pricks on the nether regions. (laughs) And God found them like this and God decided to cover them with animal skin. But for him to have covered them with animal skin means that there must have been a sacrifice. And the most comfortable animal skin to wear apparently is lamb. So scholars debate that it was possibly a lamb that was sacrificed and slayed for their covering We find this in the sacrifice of Abraham and Isaac When the angel stops Abraham from slaying his son Uh, And and the Lord asks where's the offering? Where's the sacrifice? Where's the substitute? And Abraham turns and says there's a, a lamb caught in the thicket And so a lamb is sacrificed as a substitute for Abraham Then in Exodus 12, we find that God commands the children of Israel to sacrifice a lamb for each household Now the lamb must not just be sacrificed for the individuals, but the lamb must be sacrificed for the household and for the family Later on, on the Day of Atonement in Exodus, we'll find that God establishes the Day of Atonement Yom Kippur uh, where he requires now a lamb to be sacrificed for the nation of Israel But it was later on when John saw his cousin Jesus coming down the riverbanks of the of the Jordan that he declared Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world Now we have a lamb that would be slain for the entire world In Jesus Christ. This was the lamb that Isaiah prophesied of it said he would be like a lamb led to the slaughter, silent before shears. This was the lamb that Paul spoke about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 when he said Christ is our Passover lamb who was sacrificed for us. This is the lamb that all of heaven sings around in the book of Revelation, the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth. He's the lamb slain for the individual. He's the lamb slain for the family. He's the lamb slain for the nation. And he is the lamb slain for the entire world. And we find this parallel between the lamb in Exodus 12, the Passover lamb in Exodus 12 and Jesus Christ, the lamb of God.
0: In Exodus
1: 12, the lamb was to be without blemish. We found Jesus who was without sin.
0: In exodus 12
1: we find the blood of the lamb was to be marked on the horizontal and vertical beams of each home we find in the gospels that the blood of jesus covered and smeared the vertical and horizontal beams of the crucifix in exodus 12 we find that a bunch of hyssop was taken and dipped in the blood in the gospels we find at the cross that a branch of hyssop was dipped in coal of vinegar and wine and given to christ In Exodus 12, we find that not one bone in the lamb was to be broken. None of Jesus' bones were broken, despite it being customary for the soldiers to do so. The lamb was to be slain at 9 a.m. and slaughtered in public at 3 3 p.m. According to the Day of Atonement, Jesus will be nailed to the cross at 9 a.m. and die at 3 p.m. The priest would announce on the Day of Atonement, when the sacrifice had been complete, it is finished. Christ would then announce on the cross that it is finished. And so from verses 21 to 23 of Exodus 12, which we read, we find uh, we, we begin to find a list of instructions. Three main instructions. The first one, kill the lamb. The lamb must be killed. So it reads from verses 21 to 22. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, pick out and take lambs for yourselves, according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. Now, I want you for a moment to consider the context. The context is, is that the lamb was chosen on the 10th day of the month and the lamb was to live with the family for four days and then taken out and, and slain on the 14th day of that month. And so uh, you can imagine with me for a moment how attached the children would have become to the lamb. Man, uh, I had once a Money Doberman uh, pincher, you know those mini Doberman pincher, we, we, we had the, uh, we looked after the dog for a weekend. And when it was time for the dog to go back to its original owners, the children were all crying. So I can imagine what it was like for this lamb to live in the household. It was a young lamb, not older la- than a year, to live with the family for about four days. The children become attached to the lamb, and then the father would take that lamb and slit its throat, and blood would cover its pure white wool, and the child would cry daddy daddy why why daddy why and the daddy would reply my boy this lamb is your substitute that's your substitute you see that the death sentence of the last plague was over all the land of Egypt Israel was exposed to that judgment and on that fatal night The only people that would live and survive would have been those who sacrificed the lamb. And so the lamb becomes the substitutionary atonement and sacrifice for the children of Israel. The Passover lamb became the prophetic illustration of the necessity of death. Death is the only penalty for sin. The wages of sin is death. The debt owed to justice for man's sin is death. Divine justice demands that death is the only penalty against sinning against the Holy God. And so many on that night when the angel of death passed over a debt would be paid a death to justice and the only people who would survive would have been those who escaped death by virtue of a substitute so the lamb was the obvious substitute this is the picture of perhaps one of the most cherished and important truths that we don't often get to to talk about and that's the substitutionary atonement of christ This would be the means, the only means that God would appease his wrath and save a people that he loves. This is the heartbeat of the gospel message. That Jesus paid the price instead of us. And so in Romans 5 verse 8, Bible says that God showed his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. What what do those four words speak? Firstly, that it was necessary for Christ to die for us to have salvation. Secondly, that Christ died for us speaks to the fact that this was a voluntary death. He was not obligated to die in our place He volunteered himself willingly Thirdly when the Bible says Christ died for us Christ's death was for us We needed to be saved not him He died for our sakes not for his own good He didn't need any saving We were lost we were in need we were desperate it was all done for us fourthly christ died for our sins sin is the alien intrusion into god's original intent for man it's an intrusion into god's world sin is The major obstacle preventing us from receiving everything that God wants us to receive. Sin is the breach of the first and second commandments. Sin is hostile towards God. And if sin would have its way, sin would dethrone God. But his death dealt with the penalty and power and future presence of sin. He died for our sins. Fifthly, Christ died for our sins that he might bring us to God. 1 Peter 3.18 A loving God would would not come to terms with an an unholy, loveless man. I'm going to say that again. A holy, loving God could not come to terms with an unholy, loveless people. But it was Christ's death that reconciled God back to man. And so the Bible says in Romans 3 that Jesus Christ became and was set forth as a propitiation through faith in his blood. And so the word propitiation means that something had to be pacified, something had to be appeased and in romans chapter 3 verse 24 when it says christ was put forth as a propitiation for us it means that christ's death appeased and satisfied the wrath and anger of god and the justice of god john says in his letter we have an advocate with the father jesus christ the righteous and he is the propitiation for our sins The reason why a propitiation is necessary, is that sin arouses the anger of God. Sin arouses the justice of God. God cannot allow sin to go unpunished. David Wells puts it so nicely when he he says in, in scripture in the New Testament, a man is alienated from God by sin and God is alienated from man by wrath. It is only the substitutionary death of Christ that sin is overcome and the wrath of God averted. So that God can now look on man without displeasure. And man can now look upon God without fear. Sin was atoned and God was propitiated. Sin was dealt with and removed out of the way and God's justice and wrath was appeased and stayed. John Stott said, How then could God express simultaneously his holiness in judgment and his love towards us in pardon? Only by providing a divine substitute for the sinner. So that the substitute would receive the judgment and the sinner could be pardoned. We sinners still of course Have to suffer From the personal and psychological and social consequences of our sin every day but the, but the penalty of sin For those who are found in Christ They are totally washed away Second instruction was The blood must be applied. It wasn't enough just to kill the lamb So verses 22 says, And you shall take the bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two doorposts, and none of you shall go out of the house until morning. It wasn't sufficient for the blood to be be slain, for the lamb to be slain. It wasn't enough for the lamb to die and be sacrificed. The blood had to be applied. This instruction conveys to us that is not enough to know that Jesus died for you. No. That won't stay the judgment of God. You have to personally apply the blood of Jesus to your life. You have to experience the blood for yourself, you have to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. You have to confess your sins, repent, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to ask you that question. Have you been to Jesus for that cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless or they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Verse 13 of chapter 12 says, And the blood shall be a sign for you on your houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. The blood was a reminder to the children of Israel that a death had taken place. The blood was a reminder to God that an atonement was made. And so when the people looked at the doorpost smeared with blood, they could could know for sure that their their sins were expediated. That means that their sins were moved out of the way. And when God saw the blood it was a sign that death had taken place and the penalty was paid and there was a propitiation if death was the execution of justice of justice then the blood was the effective cause of deliverance the death of the lamb wasn't enough the blood had to be shed and the blood had to be applied death without bloodshed meant no atonement neither bloodshed without blood or death so in other words it was necessary for christ not only to die but for him to shed his blood death was necessary to satisfy justice but the blood was necessary to appease and turn away the wrath of God, because when the angels saw the blood he it Passover. It's only the blood of Jesus that can quench the blazing fires of God's wrath. Why? Because the blood of Jesus was sinless. There's life in the blood. And the bible says in hebrews 9 that there is no remission of sins no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood So for god's anger and justice to be appeased and his wrath to be stayed uh, There had to be the shedding of blood a death and the shedding of blood But not just any blood because all of our bloods were stained with sin It had to be the blood of a sinless man and jesus fit the bill now there's a book called uh, how to clean practically anything they tell you how you can remove ballpoint pens stains with glycerin how you can remove berry stains from boiling water crayon stains from vinegar mothers i hope you're listening blood stains from ammonia cross stains from alcohol and magic marker stains with hydrogen peroxide and mildew stains with bleach How you can remove Rust with lemon juice But the book did not cover how to get rid of sin and its stains Because there's only one solution For a sin stained soul and that is the blood of Jesus By his blood Romans 5 we are justified We are saved from God's wrath through him by his blood Ephesians 1 verse 7 in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace Romans 5 9 I'm spared from God's wrath much more now having been justified by his blood we shall now be saved from his wrath last instruction I'm gonna close here was instruction to stay in the house marked with blood that's verses 22 of chapter 12 and you shall take the bunch of hyssop. Dip it in the blood that is in the basin strike the lintel and the two doorposts with blood that is in the basin and None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning Kiel and Delish Stated and I quote the reason for the command not to go out of the door of the house Was that in the night of this judgment? there would be no safety for anyone except those who are behind the blood-stained door. To leave your house on this night would be to assume that you would be safe, would be to assume that you can find salvation elsewhere. But if you leave, you die. Where else are you gonna find security when the angel of death comes sweeping by your home? There is no safety in turning your back on Christ. There's no safety in Islam. There's no safety in atheism. There's no joy and salvation outside of Christ behind the bloodstained door. Lastly, he gave us an instruction in verses 24 to 7. He said this will be a continuous reminder to you you shall observe this ordinance for you and your sons forever and in verse 26 it says it shall be when your children say to you what do you mean by the service and celebration you shall say it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord when he delivered us out of Egypt and when he struck the Egyptians down and delivered us from our household two truths we can learn from this is that the purpose of the celebration given and instituted to the children of Israel was for the benefit of future generations who did not have the privilege of experiencing the power and demonstration of God. We must learn as as people and children of God to pass on our faith to the next generation. The challenge we have sometimes as parents is that we teach our children what made us great, what made us successful, but we don't teach them who made us great. And our kids learn by observation. They learn from your compromises. They learn from your indifference in the faith. And what one generation does in moderation, the next will do in excess. The lamb was for the household, salvation is for the household, deliverance. Is for the household God's plan is for the family let them come to church let them make a noise let them cry and scream if they want but let them see their mommy and their daddy praise the Lord let them hear you play gospel let them hear you praying in the early morning hours let them see you reading your Bible pass on the torch of faith Second, this teaches us that when God said do this as a memorial to your sons forever teaches us one very important thing about our fallen nature our human is that we have we are predisposed to forgetfulness we forget forgetfulness is a deadly spiritual disease Jeremiah 18 over five times in Jeremiah in in chapter 2 chapter 3 chapter 13 verse 25 God lays an indictment against the children of Israel when he takes them into bondage and slavery under the Babylonians he says I have this against you my people have forgotten me Paul in Romans 15 explains to the Roman church, I've written more boldly to you on some points as a way of reminding you to Timothy he wrote Remind them of these ways in Christ. And Jesus on the Last Supper said, do this in remembrance of me. Forgetfulness is an attempt to turn every occurrence into a non-occurrence. Remembering is a powerful gesture of love. Someone remembered you and you got that job. Someone remembered you when you got that number someone remembered you and now you are married with wife and three kids someone remembered you and you experienced that blessing and god is reminding us this evening this morning not to forget there was a substitute for you because of time i'm gonna leave out the last two points my message but you'll see the children of Israel respond by falling on their faces and worshiping and once they get up from worshiping they go and do everything that Moses commanded them to the detail there was a long list of specifics but worship should always bring us to a place of obedience worship should always bring us to a place where we want to serve him where it's a joy to serve him and it's not a grievous thing to to obey him to the detail can we stand this morning Charlene uh, before we close can we, can we also just pray for you